I believe we're going to get started. It's time, 6.30. And uh, is that correct? Oh, we're, we're off a little bit. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and, uh, and get started. I want to welcome each of you here tonight. Thank you for uh, coming out to the Thursday night Bible study. This is kind of a smaller area from what we're used to over at the plaza. But, you know, the intimacy's good. There's nothing wrong with that. And uh, when the school year picks back up, we don't know where we're going to go this fall uh, because right now, as of now, the plaza isn't available to us. Not, not, not because of us. I got a call last week from uh, uh, the director of the funeral home who owns that, and they said, hey, as soon as we get these things straightened out on a legal side, we're gonna, we want you guys back. And uh, so they were having some internal issues, and I'm not going to go into that. But uh, so... We, uh, we don't really know where, which, which really speaks to the providential hand of God in what happened that we would be here. If you think about it, back a few weeks ago, our staff had been talking about maybe trying for the summer uh, a program night for the whole family where kids could be on the same campus as the adults and the student ministry. So we said, let's do it for the summer, not knowing that two weeks later the plaza would say, uh, sorry, but you can't come back anytime soon. So you talk about God's providential hand looking out for our church. And to me, that's the way it's been from day one, you know, that we're, we're trying to join God in his work and instead of God trying to, us asking God to bless our work. So that kind of excites me, but we don't know where we'll be in the fall. I will say to you that it's a possibility we could be here. Uh, the school is certainly open to that. Now, they don't know as of at this point what the fall schedule will look like and how that might Im this might impact the fall schedule. So we still have some work to do to figure out whether or not it, it will be the site. But it could be. But just be in prayer for us because uh, we're going to start looking and maybe talking to a few churches in the community who I don't know any church that has facilities that is... That, that, are very, that are really good stewards of the property. And here's what I mean by that. I'm not, that's not, a, that's not a, a disparaging comment towards churches. Churches just don't use their building every day or every night. They just don't. Um, and so a lot of times for the whole day, like during the week, the, there are certain rooms, classes, buildings that get zero use. They get used on the weekends. And so if we can find a church that has enough space that we can provide children and student ministry and a teaching setting uh, on their campus during the week, that might be a possible solution to what we're facing right now. Um, so uh, we're looking at the school here, that could be a possibility, but we're also looking into maybe some other types of facilities, churches and things like that. So we've already got a couple churches in mind to talk to and, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll just see what the Lord's up to. Quite honestly, that's all we're trying to do. Lord, what are you doing? What, what are you, what, 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 where would you want us to be? And that's exactly where we want to be. Amen? Amen. So uh, keep, it, keep that in prayer. Uh, before we get started this evening, I want to first of all thank Scott Walker, one of our elders. He's the chairman of our elder board. Scott does a tremendous job uh, leading our elder team in the meetings that we have twice a month. Uh, but Scott gave the teaching two weeks ago, and so thank you, Scott, for leading us in that teaching. I think it was chapter 25. Uh, 20, was it any, any of 24, the last part of 24, or just 25? 
And then last week, Ralph Frazier led us in chapter 26. And uh, these are both very capable men who love the Lord and are gifted to teach the Bible. And what a blessing that is in a church our size to have the Marshall Pennells and these guys and others who can teach the Word of God. And also for the women. Maureen, you're here tonight. You're one of our Bible teachers, and we just thank God for you. So for the women, and, and uh, what a blessing. Uh, we're going to pray to start, and I, I thought, in fact, Sunday I spoke to the team on, on Tuesday morning at our staff meeting that we really missed the opportunity on Sunday to pray for those who are impacted by the collapse of the building in Miami. And so uh, I want to do that tonight. I want us to take a moment. I'm not sure how many now have been confirmed dead. I think it's 18. And I think there's 145 that are still uh, missing. So that is a serious uh, matter. It's right here in our state. It affects people all over the, 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 the nation, really, family members. And so let's, let's lift that situation up as, as well as our teaching tonight. Yes? Praise God. Wow. Well, praise God. Yeah, when you can find encouragement or hope out of a situation so dire, you must know the Lord. Otherwise, how would you get it? There's no way. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for this opportunity as a church family to come together to study the Word of God. There's really no greater joy for a believer than to be strengthened and built up and edified by the Word of God. That's what gives us the energy to get up every day as the Holy Spirit unfolds, unpacks the truths of Scripture to us. And we want to apply them. We don't want to just gather information in our head. We really want this to be practical and insightful for daily living. And so, Lord, tonight, again, just as you have in the weeks before, we're asking again this evening that you would guide our Bible study and you would you would put the words in my mouth that I would move out of the way, that you would have complete control of the teaching tonight, and that the truths of the Word of God, the promises, the precepts, would be the centerpiece, and it would strengthen us. Some of us tonight need strength. Others tonight need comfort. They need confidence. And rather than look to self-confidence, they're asking for God's confidence. And so, Lord... We're asking you, by your word, to build us up, strengthen, encourage, edify, challenge, all the things, correct, all the things that we need and that the word provides. And Lord, we, we just our hearts go out to these down in South Florida who are suffering because their loved ones are missing, or they have learned that their loved one is, in fact, the body's been identified and they... they Lord, these are difficult situations, and we're just praying that you would come near to those who are hurting, the brokenhearted. Lord, who knows that, you're, that this, there are not family members and people, friends, whoever, that now their heart is more tender to consider and look to you for help in this time. We pray that, and we pray that they would seek and they would find you as they search for you with all their heart. We know that, Lord, you're not far off from us. You're right with us. And 
and be with them, Lord, in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Well, let's get started. Let's uh, get into the Word tonight, have a special time. It's going to be a good study. Uh, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 28. No, 27, just kidding. We're going to cover 27 and 28 tonight, okay? The Lord willing. And, and uh, it, it should be a wonderful time. i I got to be honest with you. Um, as I've been in this series out of uh, 1 Samuel, there's been some times where God has really come close to me and spoken to me and revealed things that uh, I needed to hear, needed to see in the Scripture. And so it's had a personal effect on me. Um, there's also been times where, because of recent events in my life, that this, this subject of, of, of the issue between Saul and David really hits uh, a, a, a sensitive area. And, uh, and so it's, it's just been a... God's used this study, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. And I hope He's using it for you too. But let's really open ourselves to what He might teach us tonight. As I look at chapter 27 and 28, i got to tell you, uh, the takeaway for me off the top is that God would work with us, that He would even consider working with a bunch of broken, messed up people, that He would allow us who have sinned, who continue to sin, who have so many shortcomings, so many weaknesses in our lives, that He would somehow come near enough to save us and then use us for His glory. And that's what I get out of this, because Saul is a complete wreck, and David is a mess. We're going to see that tonight again, chapter 27 and 28. David had significant issues, and he was overtaken by anxiety, overtaken by fear. If you don't believe that, just read some of the Psalms of David. Very much, very real about his weaknesses, his shortcomings. And yet God still chose David to be the king of Israel. And he's known by Orthodox Jews even to this day as the greatest king of Israel. Nobody would refute that. And so I just, it just speaks of the love and the redemption and the kindness and the grace of God in our lives. I hope you leave tonight knowing even as messed up as you are, God still uses you. He still loves you. And He has a plan for you. And of course, I'm not that way, but you guys have a messed up. And I do have an issue with pride, as you can tell. Okay. Well... <laughs> Let's get started if we can and, and get into the Word. Verse, verse 1 of 1 Samuel 27, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. Now, in this chapter, David makes a lot of poor decisions, and this is one of them. 
Why? Why is David making poor decisions? Well, number one, write this down. He's walking in human understanding. He has literally walked away from godly wisdom. David is functioning out of human understanding. Look what he said again. Let me read it for you. Now, he said, David said, in his heart. What's in the seat of the heart? The emotions, feelings. This is what I feel. We, we, we can easily get there. We can always point the finger at the transgender mess that we see in our nation. And that's really all they're doing. People who want to change their gender identity, they don't feel like they're a certain biological gender. I don't feel, so let me, I feel better being something else. Since when do we ever follow emotions? How long, how, how steady, how consistent are emotions over the long haul? I don't know about your life, but man, mine are like this. And here, David's in the same place. And we get the same way too, right? I mean, we can get there qu very quickly. So he's walking in human understanding rather than godly wisdom. He said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. He's actually come to this point in his feelings that Saul's going to kill him. Now, write down Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and 7, and 8. <laughs> Proverbs 3, 5 through 8, okay? Listen to what it says. Trust in your heart. No, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Submit your feelings to God. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make uh, straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Here it is. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. When we allow God to be our focus, all of a sudden, you begin to heal. You heal in your bones. You heal in your flesh. All of a sudden, now things start making sense again. There's a peace that comes over you. There's this sense of contentment that you find yourself this atmosphere of contentment. Why? Simply because you made the Lord your trust. You didn't trust in your own ideas. Paul gets in on it. In 2 Corinthians, write it down. That was Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. In 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 6, Paul said, For we walk in the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy, to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God. Don't walk in the flesh. Don't, don't let your emotions, don't let your feelings, don't let your instinct, don't let the things of your flesh rule you. Submit those to God. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. What does he mean by that? Every fleshly thought. 
David's having fleshly thoughts. Saul's going to kill me. My only option is to go live among the Philistines. It's the only thing I can do. Uh, no, he didn't, bring it, he didn't bring those thoughts captive to obey God, did he? It says in verse 6, Paul said, and being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Now, according to the word of faith gurus, you know, that's, it's just a deceptive tool of the enemy, this whole idea of the word of faith movement. Uh, and I want to be careful there because we can easily, some of us, have gotten caught up in that, the word of faith. But I'm telling you, it is, it, it is a false teaching. It is not based upon sound biblical doctrine. It is not based upon the whole counsel of God. It's taking certain scriptures and making them sound like something different than how or why God gave them to us. And, and, and what David did here was make a negative confession. And that's what they'll tell you in the, in the faith movement, the, the word of faith movement. Don't speak a negative, because it, it'll come to pass. You've you got to be careful. The power of the tongue, you've got to be careful what you say. Don't speak a negative. Um, here David makes a negative confession, according to the gurus of the word of faith movement. He said, Saul's going to kill me. Now, let me ask you a question. Did Saul kill him? No, he did not. No, he did not. They would say, no, David just spoke death over himself. Okay? They, they believe that you have to say positive things in order for positive things to happen. You avoid the negative things. Because if you say a negative thing, that negative thing is going to happen. You know what that sounds like? Superstition. Honestly. That's what it is. It's not biblical. If you speak negative, then negative things will happen to the positive things. If you speak positive things, that'll happen. Listen, reality is, if that's true, then why didn't David end up dying at the hands of Saul? Because that's exactly what they say would have happened. Okay? Listen, Christian, good things happen. Here, let me give you the whole counsel of God on this. Good things happen to bad people. And bad things happen to good people. If you want the whole counsel of God on this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. Listen to the words of Jesus. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Everybody in this room at some point gets negative. And we say things that are negative. God's not keeping score, folks. Well, you said it. Now it's going to come to pass. Your tongue was never created to be a magic wand. You're, you're not God. And God knows that you'll be negative at times and you'll say things you shouldn't say. God knows that. He still shows you grace. Then you could also be the person that you say, well, I don't, I don't say anything negative. I'm just always positive. Well, then you're the perfect Christian, aren't you? <laughs> now, show me where in the Bible you exist. Out of the whole New Testament, show me one perfect Christian. Because that's who you are. Where, where, where are they? They don't exist. The only one that's perfect is who? So that's who you are? You're you're Christ incarnate a second time? I mean, you, 
You're like Jesus? No, everybody messes up. So we got to be careful not to get sucked in to this idea that what comes out of my mouth? Oh, if I say something that's negative. And, and, and I know where they get it from. Listen, uh, when Proverbs 18.21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. It's not saying you actually bring death or life to someone by your words. Your tongue isn't that magic wand, as I said earlier. Okay, it doesn't declare these things will happen. When I speak it, I declare it, it happens. That's not biblical. Not when you look at the whole counsel of God. What it's saying is the greatest good can come from my mouth, but it also can be used for the greatest harm. The words that come out of me have an effect, yes, but you, you're not God. You're not waving your wand saying certain things, and those things come into play. And so that's the first point here. Secondly, he's making decisions based upon fear, not the promises of God. He's making decisions based upon fear, not God's promises. Remember now, Saul had just told David a few verses earlier in the last chapter, at the end of the chapter, that he would prevail, that David would prevail. Saul said that. 1 Samuel 26, verse 25. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. Now in fairness to David, uh, when Saul says something positive, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to do what he's saying, right? He's already proven not to keep his word. So, so, you know, I'm not down on David at all. But David is now exhibiting anxiety and fear. This chapter starts off, David is in fear of Saul. He's going to make major decisions in his life based on anxiety and fear. You know what that leads you into? chaos and destruction. When you and I make decisions based on anxiety and fear, we're not following God. We're now letting our emotions drive our decision making. That's a negative. Okay? God told David, by the way, if you want to know, in chapter 22, verse 5, God told David to stay in Judah when he spoke through the prophet Gad. But David has now taken his eyes off of God and has clearly placed them on Saul. So in looking at Saul, instead of the promise of God not to leave, don't leave Judah. Instead, looking at Saul, he, he, he's overcome with fear. Now he steps out of the will of God. He's not obeying God. And he's actually leaving Judah and going into the land of the enemy of Israel, the Philistines. Okay? So David is repeating the same mistake that he made when he, when he went to Gath back in chapter 21. I think it's like around verse 10. David did the same thing before. So this is not a good chapter in terms of David being the man of God. David is now fearing man more than God, which is not really who David is. But he's allowed fear and anxiety to grip him. Can we get there? I'm asking. Can we be honest? We can all get there. And we do 
on a fairly regular basis. Fear comes up out of nowhere, looks us in the eyes, and we tremble, and now we back off and we make decisions that have no basis in the Word of God. We just make decisions out of what we're feeling in the moment, the fear, the trepidation, the, it might even be dread, and we're making wrong decisions. We all do it. I do it. So this is a great lesson for us tonight, looking at the life of David, that when we do that, when we let fear lead us, no longer are we walking in the confidence of God. Okay? Verse 2, So David arose and went over he and, and the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath. Now this is a Philistine leader, a Philistine king. He and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. By the way, that's not uh, the, the whole picture of David's life. You talk about a man who, who gave up God's perfect plan, and now he's making his own decisions. He didn't just have two wives, which is wrong. He has three wives. He also has Michal, uh, Saul's daughter, but for the time being, Saul has given his daughter to someone else. But that's his wife as well. So David's really in a mess. Uh, and, and when it was told David, verse 4, that uh, Saul, that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So he's, he's kind of puffing up the king. You know, you're awesome. You're the king. I, I shouldn't be in the same city with you. And if you could just give me a, a city to live in or a town to live in and uh, let me have my own place. So David's making this request of King Achish and He's also trying to avoid the pagan influences of the king, and, I, and I, I appreciate that. So there's some things in the chapter that we can still admire in David, but he is wishy-washy at best here in chapter 27. So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. So. 16 months that he lived in Ziklag. And to this day, if you travel to Israel, uh, Ziklag is still part of Israel. Okay, given, you say, when did that happen? When David requested of the king a place to live and he gave him that city. It's still there today. Uh, now, where is that? David says in verse 8, David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Giz, Gerz, Gerzites and the Amalekites. Uh, all the ites are against David, even the termites, I'm sure. Uh, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. So now he's talking about the region of southern Canaan, and northern Sinai. That's the region that he's given to David to live in, where David's going to do what he's about to do. Okay? In verse 9, And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. And when Achish asked, Where have you 
made a raid today, David would say, against the Negev of Judah or against the Negev of the uh, Jeremelites or against the Negev of the Kenites. Now, those were people who lived in Judah, southern Judah. They lived in that region. These were not, these were people who, uh, uh, well, actually, I'm sorry, they were not part of Judah. These are people that the, the king would have been pleased that David went out. They lived in the wilderness areas. Go out and take them out. That's good. Yeah, you're, you're, you're going after the people who are supposedly Ju of Judah, uh, but David really wasn't doing that. He was going after the people who lived in these, these uh, wilderness places that were actually part of the Philistines. They were friends, allies of the Philistines. So, uh, in verse 11, And David would lead neither man or woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell, us, uh, tell about us and say, So David has done. So, in other words, what is happening is, so David's taking these folks out, and he's making sure he kills everybody, so nobody can go back and report to Achish. He's killing our, our allies and, and our people. So, David's actually lied to the king. He's saying, oh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm going up and raiding the southern parts of Judah, the, the, the God's people. And the king's going, cool. And the king's thinking, okay, if David's doing that, then Judah is turning against David because he's, he's taking out God's people. When in reality, he's going after the king's people, the, the pagan people. Now, this, this region where David was making his raids was far enough away from Gath that Achish wouldn't have known any different. And David wasn't leaving anybody alive to go and tell what was really happening. Okay? He's actually, but, but, but what he's actually doing is he's gaining appreciation from Judah. They're hearing about these groups that David's taking out. They're glad David's taking them out. So back in his homeland, they're kind of getting excited about what David's doing. Although the king thinks that David's taking out Judah. All right, what a messy mess. Okay, anyway. Uh, verse 20, or chapter 28. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. Again, we've talked about this numerous times. Philistines were far more advanced in warfare with their weapons and their, their strategic plans. They were, you know, Israel is a farm people, and the Philistines came from an island off of Greece, so the Greeks had great influence on the Philistines, uh, had taught them how to, how to smelter iron, you know. So they, they, they had tools that were advanced. They had weapons that were advanced. And uh, they were a real problem for Israel. Now, if you read through the first part of 1 Samuel and even the book of Judges, you find that Israel, when they followed God, when they trusted God against the Philistines, they always took them out. So this lesser people with lesser weapons would take out the strong army of, of the Philistines because they trusted God for it. But here we're talking about a king, King Saul, and the Philistines are coming up against him, and he is not walking with the Lord. So what he sees is a very much advanced army taking on his little army and fear and dread come over him. And so, verse 2, David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. So, what's happened is, as the Philistines are advancing up into the region of Judah to go after Saul, 
the king of uh, King Akish says, and I want you to go and fight with us, you and your men, your 600 men. And David said, sounds good to me. You'll get to see what I can do in battle. Okay? Uh, and, and Akish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Uh, that's funny. Literally, in the Hebrew, when it says bodyguard, it literally means keeper of my head. <laughs> so you're going to protect my head uh, from, from the enemy. And uh, now verse 3, Samuel had died, and that's important to recognize here. And all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, uh, his own, I'm sorry, uh, his own city. Samuel's death was originally reported back in chapter 25. Here the fact is mentioned again to emphasize the spiritual vacuum left by Samuel's departure. And Saul, verse 3, and Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. That's important to know too. Two things to know here. Samuel's no longer around. And when Samuel was around, Saul initially started out following God, being filled with the Spirit. And Samuel told him, take out all the necromancers, all the mediums, all the spiritists. Take them out. And they did. They removed them. Okay? So to, to Saul's credit, early on, he followed the Mosaic law and he cast out those who practiced occultic arts. Uh, interesting, if you want to know what passages that, was, that, that, were, that God commanded Israel to literally break any association with the occult, you'd find it in Leviticus 19.31, in Leviticus 20, verse 6, 19.31, 20, verse 6, and also verse uh, 27. And also in Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 14. Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 14. So Saul did this in his early days when he was still influenced by Samuel's leadership and by the Holy Spirit. Uh, things such as, church, please hear this, things such as tarot cards, uh, uh, you know, horoscopes, palm readers, Ouija boards, those are modern attempts to practice exactly what they were doing in the Old Testament that God commanded Israel to cease, break, get away from it, stay away from it. Uh, if a, if a, if a, if a uh, medium was in the land, they would stone them to death. That was the penalty given by God. If you practice witchcraft in any way, stoned to death, that's how serious God was about His people not participating in these things. Uh, they're dangerous links to the demonic realm. Even if undertaken in a spirit of fun, Christians should have nothing to do with the occultic arts or, or their practices. It really, honestly, there's no place for a Christian to have anything to do with any of this stuff. It's not cute. It's not funny. I, I've, never, I've never looked at the horoscope. Never care less. All I'm doing, if I do, I'm just opening myself to the demonic occult. Why would I do that? Don't do it. Okay? Verse 4, the Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. Now, let me say this about that. Gilboa is up in the area just south of the Sea of Galilee. So the Philistines had really moved a long way north into Judah. Okay, they've really advanced. 
And what they've done is they basically cornered Saul and his army because they're literally up against, the part of Gilboa goes right up against uh, the Jordan River. So they're moving, they went north and then they moved east. And they're heading towards the Jordan River and that's where Saul is. That's where he's located. And so he's being hemmed in. There's not much he can do about it. Uh, and when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. Saul was in a state of dread. He saw something that he didn't have any clue how to handle. There's no way we can get out of this. We are in serious trouble. So what happens when somebody who doesn't follow the Lord suddenly finds that they're in a situation that there's no way they can get out of? They cry out to God. I've told you, a person, atheism only works until you fall off the side of that cruise ship in the middle of the ocean and see the lights of that ship moving away and there's nothing. All of a sudden, that atheist becomes a believer. God, help me! That's, that's the situation Saul finds himself in. If we remember initially, Samuel anointed Saul as king, and the Spirit of the Lord, the Bible says, rushed upon Saul. So he started out as a man of great courage. Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 6 through 11, he, he took the oxen and he broke it up, and the cart, he broke it all up, and he said, if anybody comes up against the Lord, this is what's going to happen to you. And Samuel's like, wow, this guy's filled with God. And people feared him because he feared the Lord. Well, things have changed. Saul lost his courage when the Spirit withdrew from him. When, would, when did that happen? Back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, when he had disobeyed God totally by going in and making his own sacrifice. And Samuel said, the Spirit of the Lord is taken from you. You will not continue. Your, your family line will not stay in the royal family. You're out. You're completely out. In fact, God's already chosen the next king. It ain't you. And he's a neighbor of yours. And we know who that is, David, right? So since the death of Samuel, uh, he no longer has access to the Lord. But that's exactly who he reaches out to in this place of dread. Uh, when we don't walk, let me say this, this, this is more for us, but it, it, we see it right here in the story. When we don't walk by the Spirit, we are walking by the flesh. There, there's no other option. You're either walking by the Spirit or you're walking in the flesh. And to walk by the Spirit is to walk in the fear of the Lord. You can't walk by the Spirit unless you have a healthy fear of God. Okay? Our, why? Because our confidence comes from God when we're walking in the Spirit. To walk by the flesh is to fear men, not God, men. We, we have a greater fear of men. And therefore, our confidence comes from what men say to us, not what God says to us. So what we're doing when we're walking in the, in the flesh is we're relying on self-confidence and on other people's confidence in us. So we become people pleasers in order to hear the things that make us feel better about ourselves. What a mess! Rather than having a healthy fear of God 
and placing your identity in who you are in Christ and not fearing what man says or what the world is doing or how it affects you, but just trusting the Lord, finding godly confidence that gets you through all the situations you're facing in your life. The natural reaction is initially is to walk in fear. It's to walk by the flesh. But you got to remind yourself, no, my identity is no longer based on what men say about me or, or the confidence that I have in myself. My confidence comes from the Lord. He is my helper. He is my strength. He is my deliverer. He is my Savior. There's never been a man, and, there's never, and it's not within me to save myself. God is my strength. Now, all of a sudden, confidence comes to you. Now, you're not walking in the fear of man. You're walking in the fear of the Lord. That's where we want to live. Amen? I want you to listen to David's words in Psalm 34 as he fleshes this out in his own life. Listen to what he says. He said in verse 4 of Psalm 34, 34, 4, I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. What does that tell you? That fear is part of life. It was part of David's life. It's part of your life. Don't, don't think you've done something wrong when fear comes to you. It's what you do with fear. Okay? He answered and delivered me from all my fears. Why? Because David sought the Lord. Those who look to Him are radiant. Now David's telling you what it looks like when you walk in fear of God. You're radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. You do know that the Bible says that there are angels unaware around us, and, and, and they are real. They're as real as the demons that these mediums work with. And they are able to encamp us, to be with us. To, they bring the message of God to us. Uh, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. Do you think David's lying when he says that? This is a promise of God. Verse 10, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. You might lack the things that your flesh wants, but you won't lack the good things that the Lord has for you. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. This is David saying this. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. In other words, set your mind on the things of God which are above not on the things of this world. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord 
is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. David just gave us the recipe to have confidence in the Lord, to make it through this life of trial and trouble. He just gave it to you. The next verse, I don't have it printed, but the next verse is, um, what is the next verse? Many are the afflictions, thank you, of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Did you hear that? Many are the afflictions of who? God's people. So it's not about being a Christian so you no longer have troubles. Uh, how many of you found that, that that's a lie? Okay, that's just not the truth. The truth is you're going to have afflictions, but the Lord is going to deliver you out of all of them. Out of all of them. If someone who loves the Lord is stricken with cancer, I love it when God heals them and they go right on with life and they give God all the glory. What a beautiful thing. And then there are others who are just as righteous, who love the Lord, and the Lord chooses not to heal them. I can promise you that in heaven, He delivered them out of all their affliction. That's the confidence that we have in the Lord. So going back to the verse 6 in our text, and when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. So back in the Old Testament, the Lord spoke to His people in many different ways, primarily through the prophet. But He also spoke in other ways. God spoke by dreams. He spoke by visions. He spoke by Urim and Thummim, remember? Uh, he spoke by prophets. We've already talked about the Urim and the Thummim, uh, which were a part of the priest's garment. And they, would, were, keep, they were kept in this little pouch. They, they, some believe it was a, 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 two stones. One was white, one was black. You'd toss them, and what, however, it was either a yes or a no. Um, uh, and that might be the case. We don't really know. Maybe it's something beyond that, because the words Uman, or Urim and Thummim actually mean lights and perfections. It's possible that when they would go before God asking a question, when it was a yes, it would light up. Who knows? We don't know. We just don't know. Uh, but it was the method that God used in order to reveal things to His people many times. Now, every believer should be very interested in God speaking to him or her. I want to say that again. Every believer should be interested in God speaking to you. Okay? And the most important and sure way that God speaks to His people is by His Word. There is no other way that is more clear, that is more sound, that is more, uh, gives more confidence than God speaking by His Word. Because all other ways can be a miss. Okay, if you're hanging on a dream or a vision or you think you heard the Lord say in your spirit, you might be right. But it's possible it's not God. It could be your flesh. 
I can tell you, I've fooled myself many times. I'm just convinced the Lord's in this. The Lord told me He's going to do it. And quite honestly, I, it wasn't God at all. It was Greg. Greg just wanted it. And Greg found a way to manipulate Greg. The, the Bible says the heart is what? Deceitful above all things. Who can possibly know it? So what's the surest way for God to speak to you? By His Word. It's amazing to me how many Christians want to talk about the sign, the wonder, the, the, the dream, the vision, the, the words that God gave them, but they don't study the Bible. Listen, that is a clear indicator that they are in danger, dangerous territory. Because the way that I know what's right from wrong is from the Word of God. And the more I know what is authentic from front cover to back, the more I can discern what is inauthentic. Does that make sense? Uh, if you talk to any criminal who was a counterfeit artist, the reason that they're good at it is because they know how to mimic the real. But the people who study, who go after the counterfeiters, they have so studied what is authentic that when they see something that's just slightly different, they recognize it because they've, they've, they've saturated themselves in the authentic bill. Okay? That's us. We should know the truth. Know it well. Stay in it. Don't ever stop studying it. Always let the Word of God lead you and guide you. It will never lead you astray by the Holy Spirit. So then Saul said, verse 7, to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium. See, what a mess. That I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. Now, how did they know that? They didn't even hesitate. Remember now, he's already cast everybody out of Judah. Indoors in Judah. How, how, how did they know that there was still one there that didn't follow God's command? How, how, because they're as wicked as he is. They're living a lie. Uh, now, it would have been difficult to find a medium because of what Samuel told Saul, and Saul uh, uh, instituted the law of God. Uh, traditionally, this particular woman is known as the witch of Endor. Okay, She's the witch of Endor. While she's a witch, it's more accurate to call her a medium or a necromancer, one who makes contact with the dead. Now, even that is suspect. Okay, The Hebrew word for medium is, is pronounced ove. Ove. It's actually O-B. If you want the word for medium... O-B, and it's pronounced Ove, like O-V-E, okay? And it actually means mumbling or speaking with a strange hollow sound as if one were channeling, okay? Like you're channeling with a dead person, speaking through them. The, the Hebrew word has in mind the sound of the channel that the channel makes as they speak back and forth. Okay? The English word medium has in mind the concept of the channel. They stand in between the world of the living and the, and the world of the dead, and they communicate between the two worlds. So this is what a medium does, or a witch. 
So Saul disguised himself and put on the gar other garments, and he went to this witch, and, he, and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, Surely you know that Saul has uh, what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. So by her saying that, clearly she does not recognize Saul. Okay, Because she's saying, hey, wait a minute, you want me to bring up, you know what Saul, our king, said, not knowing she's talking to Saul. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul, look at this, swore to her by the Lord. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you, you for this thing. Really, Saul? Really? Leviticus chapter 20, verse 6. Write it down. Leviticus 20, verse 6. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from the from among his people. Saul is going to swear against the Lord who just said, I'll curse you if you go see a medium. So he's swearing by the Lord while he's taking, talking to the medium, which God forbids his people to do. Do you think Saul is in his right mind? That's what happens when we, when we rebel against God, when we resist God's truth, when we resist the, the, the purity of God's word. There are a lot of people who are really mixed up and in total confusion about spiritual things today. They even use biblical nomenclature, you know. They're going to talk in biblical ways as they practice forms of witchcraft. It'd be like planting, you're planning to rob a bank, but let's hold a prayer meeting before we go and ask God to bless, bless what we're going to do and give us success, you know. But there are, you'd be surprised how many people... That's how they think. They don't connect the dots. Here Saul is engaging with this woman who is possessed or going to be possessed by a demon to find out what God wants. Think about that. Because he's trying to figure out what God wants him to do in the battle. Now this is a, what we're about to read is a very unique situation. Nowhere else in all of Scripture do you find another example of what is about to happen. It's the only time. Everything else about the subject of mediums and necromancers points us to stay away, don't ever go to them, don't do anything. But in this situation, if something happens that's very unique. It tells us something about uh, those who practice the occult. Verse 11, Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you from the dead? And he said, Bring up Samuel. For me. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. Let me tell you what it was like. So she does her thing, you know, whatever it is, her little voodoo thing, you know, and she's going to bring up Samuel. All of a sudden she goes, Ah! <laughs> Why? Because she's a fake. She's never really been able to see a spirit come up from the dead. Or she's used to going through her spirit guide, a particular demon who is able to, to imitate the person that whoever came to her, the person they want to see. She's never been able to bring up the actual spirit of the real person 
That tells you a lot about these people who practice in the occult. They're just being used by demons if they're being used by demons at all. Some of them are just total fakes. And this caught her totally off guard, okay? Uh, <clears throat> then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up? And he said, Bring up Samuel. And when she saw Samuel, she cried out uh, with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The light came on. This is really Samuel, and that has to be Saul. That's a loaded two verses. Let's try and address everything in them. First of all, is this woman actually bringing up the spirit of Samuel? That's what a lot of Christians wonder about this passage in the Bible. Uh, when in doubt, go with the obvious text before you. And if you read further, you're going to see this is actually Samuel. God, in a special dispensation, has literally brought Samuel up to address Saul. This woman's blown away by the whole thing. She's like, whoa, she's getting creeped out thinking about it. Um, one of the two things is true here, though. That woman either was a complete fraud or she had a real experience or, or, and she had a real experience with the, with, with the spirit of, of Samuel, or she's just used to channeling through a demon. And by the way, in, in the King James Version, verse 7, uh, that we've been studying here, it says, Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out a woman who hath a familiar spirit. Seek out a woman who actually channels through a spirit guide who can imitate a familiar spirit. I'll never forget reading a book by Billy Graham called Angels. Remember that book? He wrote a book, and it was called Angels. And it's, 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 a good, it's a good read. But he tells a story in the book of going, as he would do his crusades, he'd travel. You know, they would always come in ahead of time, set up the city. The Christians would gather. They would do everything they had to do to prepare for the crusade that Billy Graham was going to hold. And then he would show up, and he would do the crusade. And there would always be people who gave money to the crusade to make it happen, and he would have a special gathering with those folks and thank them for providing the resource in order to, to preach the gospel so that people could be saved. All good stuff, okay? He was at one of those dinners in some town, and this gentleman walked up to him and said, Oh, Brother Graham, it's so good to have you. And I, I don't know how busy you are this week while you're with us, but I sure would love to have lunch with you. And Billy Graham, just a humble guy, I mean, really. I mean, that's the amazing thing about Billy Graham. That he would be so well known and yet so humble. And he was. Um, uh, Rhett Palmer here in town interviewed Billy Graham one time. And uh, he said he went to a crusade. It was an outdoor crusade. And he was out in the sun while Billy Graham was speaking. Then afterwards, they allowed him to go back. And as Billy Graham was coming off the stage, uh, they allowed Rhett to say hi to him. And Rhett looked at him and said, told him who he was. And he said, I'd love to ask you a couple questions. And Billy Graham looked at him and said, son? He said, that's fine, but son, are you okay? And he said, why? He said, well, you're really flush. And it was because he'd been out in the sun, you know. So Billy Graham showed concern for him. And, and then Rhett's question was, Dr. Graham, you are such, you come off as such a humble man. What is the secret to that? What has kept you so humble? And he looked at him and he said, well, son, if, I guess if we have to talk about humility, 
we don't really have it. Isn't that good? <laughs> well, in this book, Billy Graham said that this man wanted to have lunch. So he said, okay, yeah, we, we'll do it. Let's, how about Thursday? And the gentleman said, uh, oh, no, well, I can't do Thursday because on Thursdays I visit with my mom. And he said, oh, and this man's older. And he said, oh, how old's, how old's your mom? Oh, no, she's dead. But I go to this person who's able to bring up my mom, and I'm able to, he didn't even have a clue he was doing what he was doing wrong. He said, and, and so I'm able to have this time with my mom. And Dr. Graham said, well, sir, um, I want you to do something for me. He said, the next, on Thursday, when you go visit with that medium, he said, after that medium supposedly brings up your mom, I want you to ask in the name of Jesus, who are you? And the man went, and he did exactly what Billy Graham said. And when that you know, medium supposedly had channeled his mom, he said, I want to ask, who is this? In the name of Jesus, who are you? And immediately the medium became angry. The, her face changed like the demon revealed itself. It was not her mom, his mom. It was a familiar spirit. Demons exist. They, do, they, they don't have omnipotence. They don't have omniscience. But they can be in a location and they can recognize and remember things out of our lives. And this, they were fooling this man. And Billy Graham led him to find out, you're being, you're being defrauded. You, don't, you shouldn't be doing that. And he did meet with the man. I think it was the next day, and the man told him the story, and Billy Graham ministered to him. So, so we shouldn't play around with this stuff. It's real. I remember when I pastored in Palm Beach Gardens, uh, uh, a little lady named Ayla, and her sister was a, one of the saints in the church. She was a prayer warrior, Nora Means. And, uh, and she would pray over things, and I mean just stay in prayer until, until she got an answer from the Lord. So uh, her sister was always, uh, always she, was a, she was lost. She was always involved in the occult. So she was always praying for her sister. Well, guess what? Ayla comes to church and gets saved. I remember baptizing Ayla. But she came to see me afterwards. She goes, Pastor, I'm very troubled. I'm saved. I know that, and I'm 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 enjoying the, you know, the beauty of my salvation. But I've got all this paraphernalia from the occult, and I've got to get rid of it, because this stuff. I I literally had contact with demons. I know that, and I want to get rid of it. And so some of it uh, she gave to me, and we put it on uh, my 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 barbecue grill. <laughs> We, we, we set the fire to it. We burn it. But she said, but some things, they're, they're made out of metals. They need to be thrown in salt water so they'll deteriorate. She knew exactly how to get rid of them. And, and, and it was real to her. And God transformed her life before she passed away and, and saved her. What a beautiful experience that was. But that's how real this is. It's not something to be played with. Okay. Verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Again, the woman makes clear her inability to raise the actual dead. She's shocked by seeing Samuel. Verse 13, the king said to her, do not be afraid. Why do you see? Or what do you see? And the woman said, I see a God coming up out of the earth. 
Now, understand in the Old Testament, when it says, I see a God, it's actually in the Hebrew referring to a divine being. It's some kind of a divine being. And the, the word means God or gods or angel or ruler or judge. I see somebody who has spiritual significance coming up from the dead, from the place of the dead. So it can also be used to designate a likeness to one of those. From the medium's perspective, Samuel appeared to be like a divine being. Okay, Verse 14, he said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage to Samuel. Now obviously, age and clothing don't exist in the realm of the spirits of whom they uh, who have died back in the Old Testament. Uh, but God miraculously gave such an appearance of Samuel so that Saul was able to perceive that the Spirit was actually him. Verse 15, Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? In other words, I was in a place of bliss. What are you doing bringing me up? Now, understand... It wasn't Saul's power that brought him up, and it wasn't the woman's power that brought him up. God is allowing this special dispensation to take place. God's behind it. Uh, Now, Samuel wasn't in heaven. Uh, He didn't come from above. He came from below. He came up, the text tells us. Jesus explained in the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16 that before the finished work of Christ on the cross, all of the saints who believed, we know that the Bible says it was credited to them as righteousness long before Christ ever died for them. God credited to them as right. So when they died, they went to a holding place. And Jesus actually talks about that holding place in Luke 16 because He has not died yet. So they're still there. In, in, in Luke 16. And, and uh, he, he spoke of this place of comfort and blessing, and he called it the bosom of Abraham. Abraham's bosom. So, so when Jesus finished his work on the cross and sin's penalty was completely paid for, those believing dead were then ushered into heaven. They didn't stay in that holding place, Abraham's bosom. Now, Jesus addressed that in Matthew 27, verse 50. So write that down, Matthew 27, 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened. Look at this now. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city, into Jerusalem, and appeared to many. So just as Christ died, spoke His last words, gave up His spirit, the veil of the temple was rent, the earthquake takes place, and out of the tombs come these folks from the Old Testament. And there, many of them were seen walking around the city of Jerusalem. And so they have been set free from, the cap, from, from being captive by the work of Christ on the cross. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, 
the Apostle Paul said, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. So when Christ ascended to heaven, he took all the dead in Christ who, who had been credited the righteousness of Christ, he took them with him to heaven. So they were walking around while Jesus was walking around, and then when Jesus ascended, they went with him. He, he goes further, and behold, I'm sorry, and, and uh, in verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. There's three heavens. There's the heaven in the atmosphere above us, and then there's the, the, the stars and the moon and all the solar system that, that, and the galaxies. That's the second heaven. The third heaven is heaven itself, the throne room of God, the temple of God. And so when Jesus died, they all went with him up to the third heaven. Okay? It's right here in the, in the Scripture. It talks about that. What Paul was saying when he spoke of this was actually a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Here it is. To proclaim liberty to the captives, those who were held in captivity in this holding place until until they could go to heaven with Christ. Now, what's interesting in that Luke 16 story, not a parable, because he mentions the name Lazarus. Never, ever, ever did Jesus give a parable and mention real names. He would always say a certain man, an attorney, you know, a master. But here he speaks of Lazarus. It's interesting that just as God's uh, believe, the believers of the Old Testament were within Abraham's bosom, in the same region were all the, those who did not believe. They could not cross over where the poor man was with Lazarus, and neither could Lazarus or the poor man cross over, or Lazarus pass over to the rich man. So, so you have this chasm that's separating, and where the, those who did not believe were, were being kept Literally, um, it's a place of torment. The rich man was crying out to Abraham saying, please let Lazarus come over and just put a drop of water on my tongue. That's how thirsty he was. And Abraham made it clear, he can't come to you, you can't come to him. Forget it. It's not happening. Then the man said, well, then go back and warn my brothers of this place of torment. So here's a man who's in this holding place who's not going to go to heaven and who's in torment and he's now become an evangelist. He now believes that Jesus is the Son of God. On earth he did not believe. He now believes. Now he's asking, please go and preach the gospel to my brothers. What a profound, sobering story that Jesus gave. And so here in our story... Samuel is still in Abraham's bosom. He's no longer there. I do not believe that when we die, we go to Abraham's bosom. Because of the work of Christ completed on the cross, we just go straight up to the Lord. Amen? To be absent from the body is to be present with not Abraham's bosom. We go to be with the Lord. Okay? Yes? So one in Revelation 
That's the, that's the bodily resurrection that's going to come. That has not come yet. We've, we've not experienced the bodily resurrection. Okay, when Christ returns, that's going to happen. But we, when he sets up his kingdom and all. But, but right now what we've experienced is our spirit goes to be with the Lord. Okay? Now, verse 15, Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me. So he's telling this to Samuel, the spirit of Samuel. And God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? By the way, God never turns first. We're the ones that turn from the Lord. God simply honors our decision to reject Him. That's why people go to hell and not heaven. God did not initiate that. They did. The Bible clearly tells us that the Lord doesn't wish that any would perish, but that all, everybody, would come to saving faith, right, in Christ. But if you're going to reject, God will honor your decision. And he has turned from Saul because Saul has completely rejected God. And God, with his foreknowledge, knew Saul will never turn back. He knows whether a person will turn back or not. Verse 17, the Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. In other words, when I was living, God spoke through me to you. He's still holding to the same promise that he gave you back when I was living. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Back then he didn't say David. He just said he's given it to your neighbor. Now he's just go ahead and let me give you the, the facts. The one you've been trying to chase down like a dog and kill... David, that's who God has given over the kingdom to. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his, his fierce, I'm sorry, and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. So essentially, Samuel confirmed what God already said to Saul. Nothing new here. It's not like Saul can blame God. Well, he never told me this. No, he knew very clearly from God that God said these things. So this is just a continuation. The message of the Lord to Saul is always consistent, no matter what strange way God chooses to bring the message. And this is a really weird one. <laughs> That's bad news for Saul, but it's about to get much worse. Look at verse 19. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul left at one, or fell at once full length on the ground, prostrate, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. So he's already in a state of great fear over the battle with the Philistines. Now Saul goes into a state of complete, utter dread when he hears that he will die in battle the next day with his sons and that, and that Israel will be handed over to the Philistines. His fear was so heightened by the words of Samuel that he is completely deprived of strength and vigor. It's like every ounce of energy in his body left him. He falls prostrate down. 
coupled with the fact that he hadn't eaten. He lacked, he lacked nourishment. And why hadn't he eaten? Because he was sick over the fact that he knew the Philistines could take him. So God's judgment against Saul was already in motion, folks. God's always ahead of us. He's not behind us. Before this time, Saul had plenty of time to repent, but now his time has run out. We can never assume that we will have as much time as we want to repent. The desire and opportunity to repent are gifts from God. They're a gift. Don't treat them. Don't take them for granted. If we have the desire and the opportunity today to repent, you need to take advantage of it. Seize the opportunity while it exists because they may, there might not be a tomorrow. Now, I'm speaking to the church here. So you're saved. If, if, if you believe, if you have repented of your sin, you're saved. But think about the people you know who have not repented, have not turned their lives over to Jesus Christ. They are not guaranteed tomorrow to repent. Now, I don't know what that does in your heart, but in my heart, it causes me, it compels me to want to pray harder for their salvation and to take the opportunities God might give me to speak to them. But I got to tell you, when they reject time and time and time again, as you come in love to them, to share the gospel with them, to bring them to a point of understanding what salvation really is and that eternity is real. And they just keep rejecting. At some point, Jesus said, shake the dust off your feet. You should not carry guilt for the fact that they chose not to repent, even if it's your children. Now, you, you should always carry just a sadness, right? A brokenness over the fact that they haven't repented. Don't ever apologize for that. It's okay. But the fact is, don't let the enemy beat you up because they chose not to repent up to this point. Keep praying. Keep taking the opportunities because you never know when they might repent. Amen? God, only God knows if they will before they, they leave this earth. But you be faithful to, to, to throw the seed when God gives you opportunity. But don't carry guilt and shame over their lack of repentance. You can't repent for them. You can't, listen, you can't talk someone into salvation. Nobody ever gets saved because somebody's really good at soul winning. The only reason people get saved is because they hear the gospel and the light of the gospel comes on. Only God can do that. I'm sorry? God changes the heart. That's exactly right. We can't change our own heart, much less anybody else's. I just see too many Christians who carry shame and guilt, and they take it personal, like, I did something wrong. I must not know how to share the gospel. That's why that person... No, it's not true. If you were faithful to, cast, to broadcast the seed, that is the only thing God tells you to do, right? Be a sower. Keep throwing seed. He doesn't say... Well, you got to throw the seed this way. You got to make sure you're dressed a certain way. You got to talk in the lingo they understand. You got to like the songs that they like, and you got to do it their way. And then maybe they'll get, they don't get saved by that nonsense. It is solely the work of Christ. You just be faithful to throw the seed. Now, if you're not throwing the seed, you should feel conviction by the Holy Spirit over that. That's our responsibility throw seed. Throw seed.
verse 21. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. I don't want you to die in my house. Let that be on my head. <laughs> he refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together with the woman urged him and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. And now the woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly killed it. And she took the flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants and they ate. And then they rose and went away that night. So what a sad final thought on this chapter. The only comfort left for Saul comes from his wicked servants and a witch. It's a shallow comfort. The next day he's going to die and he will not be with Abraham's bosom. That's all the world can offer us, physical bread physical things. And I think that's a wonderful way for us to understand the importance of sharing the gospel, bringing spiritual food to people. It's upon us to do that. Amen? So he leaves that house and he goes back and he returns to camp to wait for his doom. Because when God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Father, tonight, this is a sobering word. You are a faithful God, and we live in an age of grace, the church age, the age when, when the grace of God is poured out through the work of Christ, and we are able to ask you for forgiveness. We're able to seek forgiveness of God, and you grant it. And you allow us to come into your saving faith, into the relationship. Our, we are literally uh, regenerated in our spirit by the Holy Spirit through the work of Christ on the cross. So we're so thankful tonight for that. But Lord, help us not to take for granted this age that we live in, this age of grace. That this is when we are to be sowers of the word of God. There are so many around us at work, in our neighborhood, even in our own families who have not yet repented of their sins and turned their lives over to you. Oh God, open their eyes to see the truth of the gospel. Give us faithfulness to share the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we'll... Enter chapter 29 next week. We'll continue in this study and, and see where the Lord leads us.